Hi everyone, welcome to Talk Notes After Dark. Tonight we're going to be continuing our discussion on Gnostic elitism that we were doing in our video cast earlier. But before we continue, um, I want to throw it over to Father Tony, who wants to be thanking our patrons, as we all do. That's Father right. Tony. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, again, if you are not yet a supporter of the Gnostic NYC network on Patreon, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash Gnostic, and uh, you can support us there by giving us a little bit of money every time we release a video or a podcast, and we really appreciate it. We'd like to, I'd like to thank our newest sponsors for this uh, past week. Uh, we've got Brenda, Adrian, Fayette, Mike, uh, I think Jonathan is also new, uh, maybe, um, and then everybody else, I think we thanked last time. Oh, no, I think Scott also is new and Donald. Yeah. Yes. So uh, thank you to everybody who has uh, contributed to our Patreon campaign. We really appreciate it. It's going to help us make more and better content for you as we go along. Yes, absolutely. And uh, please do, you know, uh, chime in with your ideas for content as well. We can't guarantee that we're going to do them, but um, we love getting ideas from people for, for content and show topics. Absolutely. And my uh, two cents on that is if um, they're enjoying this enough to be supporters of us, I think it would be really nice to, if they are throwing us some topics and, uh, you know, so we'll see what we can do to uh, discuss those for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, uh, we addressed an interesting topic tonight, and mm -hmm. that is uh, Gnostic elitism. Um, mm -hmm. Do Gnostics fancy themselves as elitists? Do we structure our organizations in an elitist fashion? Uh, do we think of ourselves as elitist? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we, we kind of touched on some interesting topics, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess I'm going back to my own experience when I first entered into this community, the, the, the occult esoteric community, which also was very closely tied to the local Gnostic churches. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a real hierarchy. I hadn't seen that kind of hierarchy really anywhere, but it was definitely there. And then and people who had certain degrees and whatnot were definitely treated uh, mm -hmm. differently. I don't know about what, – what do you say, Bishop Ken? Well, that's exactly what my experience was. I mean, you know, like many of my generation, I'm 50 years old. Um, you know, I sort of, um, you know, talked about this many times before, but, you know, I kind of started my – esoteric studies, if you will, uh, you know, studying the material of the Golden Dawn that moved on to Crowley. It was through um, kind of the works of studying uh, kind of the Golden Dawn and, um, and related is that I became aware of kind of the French Gnostic movement because sure. it was through looking at Crowley and his schools of thought and then OTO and where did they come from? Well, you know, they kind of came from Martinism and Memphis Mizraim and then the French Gnostic Church and boom, that kind of led me into the French Gnostic traditions. So I was very much surprised uh, at the time living in Chicago, uh, knowing that there was an active French Gnostic community, who, you know, within within Chicagoland. But right away, um, I think I was a little taken back because, as uh, we've discussed before, we both came from um, evangelical backgrounds, which there isn't as much hierarchy, if you will. Right. And now all of a sudden, I'm involved with. With people where there are associated orders, you know, in Martinism, you've got three degrees plus the fourth degree for the free initiators. Um, you've got various orders within the Gnostic Church. The French Gnostic Church uh, that I was a member of, we even had initiation ceremonies for those who were entering into the church. 
besides those who were uh, involved in things like minor orders. It was highly encouraged uh, that uh, all of our members um, uh, received at least minor orders and that they all got involved in things like Martinism. And yes, there was definitely kind of a hierarchy and, and at first, on my end, I would say, I'm not saying necessarily the organization's end, but there was definitely kind of a perceived, uh, you know, elitism, kind of a perceived, these people are higher degrees, they know more, these people, uh, um, you know, hold the gnosis, these people quote, quote, hold the keys. <laughs> um, and uh, that was definitely my experience. Um, and I think for many, that might be their first experience with our particular movements, which I think for, for many can also turn them off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, having been like you in, a, in an evangelical where, yes, you had ministers, um, pastors, but that was about it, um, where everybody was supposed to be equal, where everything mm -hmm. is supposed to, uh, the, 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 the salvation is supposed to be open to all. The notion of any kind of spiritual hierarchy was deeply offensive to me mm -hmm. at that time. And I eventually grew out of it. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing sometimes. Can I, can I take us in a bit of a different direction here? Absolutely. Okay. The, um, the you you guys talked a lot on the video show about the elitism of you know the clergy versus the laity or the perceived elitism rather the clergy versus the laity. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of thoughts on that, all, but you know I want to come back to that in a minute. What mm -hmm. what you didn't touch as much on that I was hoping that you would is you know what about us versus them, the Gnostics versus the the others. I mean, you you mentioned it, but you kind of glossed over it pretty quickly. I think yeah. that's the the main point that people like Irenaeus and the other heresiologists were really kind of uh, were railing against when they hated the Gnostics. They said, you know, mm -hmm. you know, I don't get to be one of those special and unique snowflakes like those Gnostics uh, mm -hmm. because you know they have the secret knowledge that nobody else gets. Mm -hmm. So, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is is that the division of the Hylic psychic pneumatic division is that something that the Gnostics themselves would have taken literally and they said you know we are the pneumatics and we are better than the psychics and the Hylics Hylix, however you pronounce it hmm. I, I think that's a that's a good question I, I think if we were maybe looking at the idea of of um, groups that we may identify as historic Gnostics today who may not have self-identified that way uh, centuries ago. I think there might have been some of that. Um, I think it might have been even commonplace in such learning centers as like Alexandria, where there were many learned from all around the world that, um, you know, we maybe had drawn in and maybe we're even trying to recruit people um, kind of based upon kind of these ideas of uh, Gnostic of elitism, um, that, that those who were in possession of this knowledge um, were superior to those who weren't initiated into this particular knowledge, that we were maybe looking for those who were uh, um, of higher education, of higher intellect. I think historically that might have been the case. Um, you know, um, I don't know if that was necessarily true in all cases, but I think that there's enough evidence to kind of support that. Um, modern day, 
I think that I still see a lot of that perception. It sort of becomes, uh, for many groups, not all, and not definitely for all individuals, but there does seem to almost be this perception, us against them. Yeah, uh, we are joined now by Monsignor Jordan Stratford, uh, who has called in, and uh, and and we're going to get him on, in on this conversation. Monsignor, we're talking about the division of the Hylic psychic pneumatic and whether or not it was at one point taken literally. Do we take it literally now? Are we unique and special snowflakes? That kind of thing. <laughs> what's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that it's absolutely we're unique and special snowflakes. Uh, <laughs> you know, within us, we have the spark of the indwelling divine and that we are manifesting it in a way that is unprecedented, uh, that our experience uh, with our incarnation is unique. Our experience with gnosis is unique because it's a it's the chemistry. It's the actual the, it's the formulation between ourselves and the dialogue with the, the pleroma. Um, certainly, standing back from that in the Valentinian worldview, we have this very clear statement that there is nothing whatsoever outside the pleroma. Everything is part of the big shebang. Mm -hmm. uh, and I see these modalities or these these, these labels of. Uh, Hylic psychic pneumatic, um, these are modalities of engagement. We're always occupying these things simultaneously. Every idea has these, has this sort of this tripartite nature. And when we can address issues, ideas, uh, people, phenomena, experiences, emotions through, the, through these three lenses that we have to analyze behaviors and our interactions with them. So just as in uh, in Kavala on the, the tree of life, every <laughs> contains the entire tree. Every sphere contains every other sphere. Just as, uh, from, from my point of view, when we're seeing in the primary source material, uh, this tripartite division, that it's in the context of the, this is, um, these are ingredients in the soup that were, you know, uh, it, it's much more freeform. It's not, it's not stratified. You know, this, uh, as um, I just chipped in with in, uh, on Facebook, this isn't Calvinism. You know, there isn't an unconditional election. There's not, okay, the saved and the damned. You know, we're not doing that. Um, uh, so I, I can't see how that could really be seen to be a, a elitist or literalist at all. And certainly given the fact that um, uh, as you go back, you really in the, Seth, the Sethi material, it's quite clearly... Um, universalist. There's this epicatastasis, and there is um, within um, this, there's a uh, an ultimate redemption for for everybody. Everybody gets in eventually. Mm -hmm. Whether whether we have this metaphor of reincarnation or whether we have um, the or we have the um, uh, just the individual processes, the degree to which it's literal or, or a metaphor is, is, is open for it. But eventually everybody gets in. Yeah, there's, there's a fundamental, fundamentally um, optimistic message in Gnosticism, isn't there? I believe yeah. so. Yeah. And, and yet so often the Gnostics are accused of being these world-hating dualists who should just kill themselves if they hate the world so much, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 you hear it over and over again. If we hate the world, why do you stick around? But it's because mm -hmm. of this kind of fundamentally optimistic message of, you know, 
yeah, the world's a little bit screwed up, and, and yes, you know, there's there's a there's a better existence out there. But yes, there know, is. But we can get there. We this is this is the process that we go through in order to to do that. It doesn't have to be this way. Um, where if you if you look at as you bring up uh, Monsignor Jordan brought up the Calvinists. I mean, we want to talk about elitism. Um, you have a God that creates one group of people for the purpose of living with them you know, in paradise, and then the other group of people explicitly so he can demonstrate his wrath mm -hmm. uh, against humanity. You know, the idea is that you're, he's tormenting these people explicitly to demonstrate um, his, his power and his sovereignty, and he, he, he damns them to eternal hellfire, which is um, kind of disturbing if you think about it. And there's nothing these people can do about it. Right. Right. That was always one of my arguments when I was a child growing up exposed to kind of that uh, evangelical movement. It's like, wow, you're telling me that for the mistakes I can make and kind of missing the mark and not uh, not necessarily doing everything exactly the way that you're telling me that I should, that if I screw up, that for all of eternity, not for the amount of time that I'm here on this earth, but for all of eternity, which I can't even fathom as a child, but that I'm going to be condemned to eternal vampire? And the answer is yes, <laughs> for all of eternity. Yeah. One of the things that um, I, I had a I had an interesting reaction to one of the videos that the uh, the Joe and I Church posted on their YouTube channel uh, mm -hmm. from the from the Sydney Conclave. Um, two years ago, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mar Thomas, who was our guest on the on the show next week, uh, was giving a lecture. I can't remember what the lecture was actually about, even at this point. But uh, I'll have to go back and watch the video. But the the he started talking about elitism, and he says, "Are Gnostics elitists?" Yes, absolutely. And then cut to part two coming out next week. And so mm -hmm. I had to wait an entire week to figure out what does he mean by that. Right. <laughs> and um. What he ended up saying, and, and he'll correct me, I'm sure, if I paraphrase him incorrectly, is that, that, uh, that yes, there is an elitism to Gnosticism, but it's a self-selecting elitism. That, mm -hmm. you know, those people who come to – and it – but, you know, in the, same, in the same way that this kind of exists with any other organization or group you can belong to, if you mm -hmm. choose to become a member of that group, it's kind of a self-selecting elitism. There's an us versus them kind of an aspect there. Um, the, the consequences might be higher or perceived to be higher in, in a religious tradition. Um, you know, when you're talking especially in terms of, you know, living on a fluffy cloud with uh, some, you know – some uh, anthropomorphic sky wizard guy with a, with a harp or burning forever in a lake of fire, you know, that's, that's pretty darn important. But, uh, <laughs> but having the us versus them dichotomy um, that exists in Gnosticism is, in my opinion, less, uh, I don't know, uh, less, less dramatic, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because if you look at the Sethian material specifically, um, the uh, the the psychics are they're okay you know they 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 do their part they go to church and they do their thing and um, uh, they, of course I didn't use the term psychics but you know the, the, these people eventually uh, through faith and through works or whatever the uh, the specific criteria are they'll get saved eventually too you know mm -hmm. even if they're not quite as good as us and so maybe that's a form of elitism too but it's a soft elitism. 
Yeah, it, it seems reminiscent to me as uh, the the big raft, little raft uh, analog in Buddhism, where you know everybody's crossing the river, and the big raft is just living a good life and and uh, kind of walking an eightfold path. And but you know the little raft is one of um, of discipline and austerity, and you know, we're still getting across the river in our own way. And some people are experiencing that process of spiritual evolution, um, trying to achieve this liberation. Uh, through through different means, mm-hmm. uh, but you know we're all crossing the river. We're all on this journey, and so it's not about saying, okay, these people over here are high. Like, um, you know, there are certainly uh, places that I have, spaces that I inhabit intellectually and emotionally in the course of a day, where I'm I'm a high like being. I'm just stuck there, yeah. and at that particular moment, um, am I really allowing any room in my life for for grace? Um, or for gnosis to take root and flower into grace. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, there are times when I'm just analyzing an, an idea to death, and while I've got the gist of it, you know, while I'm kind of getting an A in the course, I'm missing the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that's called the internet. <laughs> and that's an extremely psychic modality for me. And there's a, a pneumatic uh, indwelling that also never goes away. But um, it's where am I putting, where am I investing uh, individually my attention? And then I think the reason why we see this this cautionary in the literature is where do we as a community put our attention? Yeah. And I, one of the things I, one of the things I wonder about is where do we make the, how do we make the determination? Um, it, it, you know, how do we make the determination? You know, we, we've talked about here that yes, the heresiologists were willing to point and say, well, they have these three groups, and Monsignor Jordan points out that we kind of exist with these in these three modalities a lot of mm-hmm. the time. Uh, how how do we make those distinctions between how, when do I know that I'm being pneumatic and when do I know that I'm being psychic and, and when am I stuck in being high? Like, is it possible for me to deceive myself about that? Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, humans were really good at that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, we do have two little uh, gems. Um, one is the fact that we are such a thing. We do have uh, this imago dei. We do have this. Um, we do have this kernel of the real, of the under, of underlying reality that we can pay attention to, and that does not just take up, go away. Um, and the other is that we have an intuition about that particular, uh, that, that, that little kernel. And that's our census plenior, right? We have this, um, uh, this radar that goes off and says, you know, the divine is, 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 is imminent and it's right there and it's, it is present. So um, we do have an, an instinct. We are actually... Uh, Im- imbued with this particular saving mechanism. I'm loving the, 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 the whole thing going on with the screen. It's fantastic. Um, it's, very, it's very humbling. Break it all down. But yeah, we, so we do have, we have conscience, we have Imago Dei, we have Census Planior. So these are tools that we use to, um, to check against our self-deception, self-delusion. That being said, self-deception and self-delusion are human nature. We're extremely good at it. Um, ego is, is so great at telling you 
when you conquered it and you finally mm-hmm. conquered ego and aren't you fantastic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On ego conquer. <laughs> um, and, you know, ego's a picture like that. That's the demiurge that we, that we live in. That's, a, that's the thing that creates the world that we inhabit. Yeah, it is. Um, and then, then, of course, then there's another question that uh, springs from that is, are, we, are any of us in any position to determine whether another person is in a state of, of, of advanced spiritual attainment? I think you can test uh, or use the same metrics that you do for yourself. So we do have conscience. We do have a place of stillness that within ourselves that can uh, be open to the gift of discernment. I don't think that discernment or judgment is is a a negative thing. And I think that, um, uh, again, using that that sense of spanior, that that radar for the sacred, that we can recognize the divine spark in everyone. And we can see through reason and through debate and through engagement. Um, And we can say, what's the response of reason and compassion as we go forward and we um, explore this with somebody? to see where they are in relative to your experience. Um, and you know, there's an objective reality. This is not, um, this is not relativism. We can look where, where someone is exhibiting spiritual gifts or when someone is experiencing spiritual harm or when someone is inflicting spiritual harm. You know, we know mm-hmm. that. Um, and our, our pastoral response then is, okay, how can we make sure that everybody is going to get back to uh, a respectful space and a healing space because again we have this apocatapasis we have this restoration we are all part of the pleroma so let's all get along and everybody play nice um and you know how, how can we be fully present with that particular wounding um as, as pastors Interesting. You know, the, the question that you just presented, you know, Laney, um, I find it interesting and kind of tying into this idea of elitism is that, uh, you know, many of the groups that I've been part of, um, there may be those who are, we'll call them higher initiates, who only perceive other high initiates as those who are attained whether you know certain passwords, whether you know certain grips, whether you know um, certain particular formula. Um, But yet, I can look at a group of quote-unquote high initiates, um, of bishops, etc., and even do something as, as common as looking at their Facebook page and see hatred and negativity and and all of these other things that make me go, oh my god <laughs> you know these are supposed to be the people who quote unquote claim they are the spiritual elite who's supposed to be the mentors of uh, upcoming generations and sometimes i kind of cringe on it um you know um when we are um you know, trying to discern, you know, uh, kind of gnosis in others, you know, for, for me, it's not as much as what they are part of or what uh, they particularly know, even concerning my own particular traditions, but how does that manifest in the world around them? How do they treat, you know, mm-hmm. 
everyone else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, do, do you see any signs of love through them? Do you see any signs of, uh, of, um, of justice and of balance in their lives? If, if, if you're always seeing all these red flags and, you know, look at this group of people or look at this uh, group of people, whether they're talking politics or whether they're talking uh, uh, something else. uh, Sometimes, um, you know, for me, that's a big red flag. You said something important there. Um, You said, you said uh, that they exhibit love. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I I really think that's the most important. I mean, just uh, speaking as a Joanite specifically, we place a lot of emphasis and, and we've done a lot of, research as a as a community over the past couple of years on this idea of the divine love that we mm-hmm. have for each other and um one of the things that i've discussed not only with the joe and i community but with um greg kaminsky the host of the uh, lost word um show that we do on the channel here we we often talk about this you know what does what do what does a sign of western attainment look like you know you look to the east and you see these um spiritual teachers in the east who meditate you know for the whole day and there are certain signs that they look for specifically uh to say that this person is enlightened um not exclusively but things like you know they go out on a cold mountaintop and they put a wet blanket over them and they raise their internal body temperature to dry the blanket right and Mm -hmm. there there are stories of that kind of thing throughout the eastern uh mystical communities um in the west what does that look like what does it look like to be a spiritually advanced quote-unquote person in in a you know judeo-christian islamic context um and we've come up with a couple of ideas. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. I know it's off topic, but <laughs> no, it, it's it's an interesting question. And actually, I was um, I'm, I'm hoping this is not too far afield of where you were going, Father Tony. But I was just thinking, um, how does a Gnostic what, what what does Gnostic scripture study look like? Um, if we're assuming, for example, that the Gnostic scriptures were meant for specific communities for people who were initiates into a tradition or had been trained in a specific tradition or practice, um, would they be using the same tools that uh, modern biblical scholars use? to interpret their scriptures? Or do we expect somebody uh, who has attained a certain level of, of uh, insight or, or gnosis to be able to offer radical interpretations or understanding of those scriptures? And maybe, I, maybe my fundamentalist background is showing here that I'm, fine, I'm looking at that as one of the tests, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just throwing that out. Um, what, you know, would the ability to expound on ancient teachings be a sign of that, or would in fact a modern Gnostic be expected to come up with their own? I think that's uh, interesting that um, you know, there's always the, the, the kind of PhD thesis approach that you have to contribute to the sum total of knowledge in some way. Um, I, you know, I think both of those are, are valid. Obviously, you've got a bunch of people sitting around. What we tend to do is we tend to look at the scholarship. You know, we're looking for people who are not even necessarily members. In fact, we defer to people who are not necessarily members of our community, um, but are the current authorities on the scripture and the context and translation. Mm-hmm. And rather than saying, oh, our tradition says it means X, we defer to someone maybe from a completely different faith tradition who says, 
actually in the context of the time or in this particular vernacular, this is the translation and this is what these people were talking about. And we roll with that. We say, oh, okay. Um, and then how can we apply that? Mm-hmm. But certainly um, through, uh, through my own experiences and through the, the shared experiences with others, um, the, our scriptural horizon is so broad and so vast mm-hmm. that the combination of, of certain things, um, I noticed in a, an earlier monograph I had written, I came across, it was published at the same time as something Richard Smalley had, had um, written about, which was the, uh, the seven demons uh, from which Mary Magdalene was, was exercised. Was exercised. Um, that this relates to the climax hetapulos, and that was actually, it was a, a, a code word for a And we both stumbled upon this independently. Um, there's the, a, a magic to that. There was a great sort of frisson seeing that the, we were both working away and we both intuited this, this same conclusion simultaneously. Well, see, you, you, the word cut out, the important word cut out, it was a, uh, a, a symbol for something. Or... Oh, it was really, uh, it was uh, an intimation or a code word for Gnostic initiation. Okay. Um, and I'm not saying that it, that it was necessarily, but I think it's very, very interesting that at a time when we have the model of these, uh, these seven key archons who are calling the shots, that we have seven demons being exercised. So from a, a, from a Gnostic lens, we can see how the Mary Magdalene story um, and her exorcism relates to our this particular uh, the narrative in this myth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we so we are contributing to things all the time that don't necessarily come from scholarship. They become they come from insights. Um, the uh, the five trees in Thomas, for example, and the way that they relate relate to um, the five sacraments in Philip. Different different uh, eras, different communities, and yet there's a way that you can say if this were intentional, or if there was some kind of underlying egregore or spirit that, that is informing these communities and these documents, they, they line up real nice. <laughs> and um, uh, that's just something to, to sit with, to abide with. It's not, not going back and, and making um, an academic archaeological proposition, but we're entertaining these ideas. And you know, isn't that the, the Gnostic tradition where documents themselves are not necessarily um, press releases put out by one individual, but they're more like transcripts of drunken dinner party conversations. <laughs> You've got yeah. a few of those. Yeah, and, and, we're, and we're throwing these ideas out there. It's, a, it's definitely it's a culture jam. It's, an, uh, it's a theology jam. Um, and this is what we have to look at. Yeah, one, one thing I found when working on my my first vlog post that I posted the other day, it was, you know, even even the scholars who study these things have very, very different understandings of what the ancient Gnostics were doing and what they were actually saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point about looking outside of our communities for these kind of expert uh, commentaries on, on the texts, you know, that's that's only as good as you know, the, the scholar working on it. And of course, some of them are very good and some of them have agendas and, you know, they're, they're all people too. But yeah, the more, the more we mature as communities, as our own individual Gnostic communities, the more I think we'll see 
that kind of thing, the the traditional interpretations and the, the understanding of the texts in the way that is more useful for uh, a modern spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and I guess my question, which uh, I, I think is probably just a continuation of yours, Tony, but, uh, you know, but for the three of you is, you know, as Gnostics, you know, do we... Do we um, do we get into this trap of of limiting ourselves to the to the uh, educated uh, viewpoint on on these texts or or the educated interpretation of these texts? At what point, as Gnostics, do we go? Hmm. Why well, I may respect you know uh, Doctor So and So who wrote the introduction to this particular book and gives this particular insight. Um, this isn't what the text is saying to me. This isn't what my own particular gnosis says that this particular means in my own particular interpretation of this. Um, when does you know when does gnosis really? go above kind of this intellectual masturbation well every time <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think there you you stratified you're really saying when is a pneumatic interpretation supersede a psychic interpretation mm -hmm. so, so I, I begin with that bipartite model in effect um i i can see your father you saying you know, all the time and, and yet at, at the same time if to um, if you're really having a Gnostic insight into that particular text, it's involving, it's including a, um, a psychic interpretation and a highlight, which I would say would be sort of the, 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 the spatial, the temporal, the cultural context, um, the shape of the language itself, the, it, it's earthy nature. So it's, you're only superseding that one particular strata when you are embodying all three of those modalities simultaneously, when it becomes syncretic, um, then it becomes an alchemical process. So rather than just saying, all right, we're just, just going to take this one strand out of the thing, we're actually going to transmute this entire experience and turn it into something else. That's valid. That We can deal with both of those um, things which conflict superficially, but we're good with paradox. We're Gnostics. You know, we do that all the time. Um, we can hold those two ideas in, in dynamic attention um in a loving and respectful attention um and, and visualness so i think that this answers both of those questions one is how do we know when you're there well we know when we're there when we're dealing with this stuff um in a fair and in, in a in a uh, a way that imbues um a balance and respect for both of these viewpoints and we can see the relationship between these perspectives and 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 hold them uh and include them rather than mm -hmm othering them. Um, and that's what a Gnostic study group looks like. You know, we're using, you know, good old fashioned bib lit grit. Um, and yeah. we're cracking over, uh, cracking open the New Testament Greek and we're waiting word by word through the Coptic interlinears. And, um, and, and then we're ripping on it and we're making art and we're making poetry and we are, we're, uh, creating beautiful Jungian mandalas. Um, or we're being hit in the head with pink light beams and writing science fiction novels. <laughs> that's what we do. That's how we're expressing it. And that's how you know, because it's by their beginning, it starts to bear fruit. And by their fruit, uh, yeah. you know that, that that whole experience is rooted through um, a, a, a high like uh, understanding of 
uh, the, the culture of the value of the politics, all the, the scary mammalian stuff at the time that it's being analyzed and parsed and debated and discussed through the psychic branches. Um, and that ultimately it's bearing a pneumatic fruit. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting ta- d- diversion that we took there. And I think that that should be a whole other, uh, show in and of itself. I made a little note here. Um, okay, good. But let's get back to the elitism question. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things I took notes on while you guys were talking on the video. Um, so you're, you're both bishops. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Episcopacy, uh, bishops have been called the fullness of the priesthood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you've sure you've heard that term before. In, mm-hmm. in the sense of a, uh, and you mentioned this on the show too, that the modern Gnostics often see that there is this clergy thing that's happening and, you know, they think, well, if I want to do Gnosticism, I have to be a member of the clergy. And then uh, if I'm going to be a member of the clergy, why not go all the way to the top and become a bishop? And so, mm-hmm. as you mentioned about some of the, the church traditions you've been involved with in the past, that there's a tendency towards, well, everybody's a bishop. And that was certainly true in, in Juanel's church, in the Restoration Church, where, mm-hmm. you know, they just went around putting hats on everybody who was interested. So, <clears throat> what why is that bad? Is that bad? Why don't we do it as much today? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Well, there are some groups that do do it today, it seems to me. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I've, I, I've encountered that. I think, I think it depends on, um, on the individual community, uh, the individual bishops involved. Um, I think that one of the real problems with having, and this is true not only in the Gnostic churches, but in the other independent sacramental churches, is that they tend to be very clergy-heavy, um, in large part because it's very difficult to attract lay people. Um, there's no buildings. People don't want to go to a church that doesn't have a permanent building. Um, you also have people who, frankly, have not been trained in, in seminaries, and you've got all these other issues that make the movement, make the individual communities very small. Um, but I so do you're think saying that a mitre covers a multitude of sins? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna absolutely. Write that down. Yeah. That's going to be the title um, of the episode. Yeah, and bad roots too. But yeah, it's, it's um, no. But you know, so so you have so you have that. But one of the real problems is is that people come to expect that they will be made a bishop eventually. That you know they stick around long enough and play the game long enough, they'll be eventually made a bishop. This is not an attitude that you see among Lutherans or Episcopalians or Roman Catholics or or Orthodox or other or Methodists or any of the other churches that actually have bishops. Or sensible, um, generally. I'm sorry. Or sensible people generally. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the idea is, is that you know, if, and I, you know, so it's. Um, I, I think it's problematic if the community identifies the episcopacy as an eventual, as an expectation. Uh, that we can, everybody is going to eventually attain it, and if they don't, that means somebody doesn't like them or they're screwing up in some way. Well, what is the impulse that makes that the, you know, the, the expectation in the first place? Well, they walk into a community that's got five bishops and three people sitting in the congregation. Yeah, but I'm, I guess I'm asking the question one step further back. You know, is, okay. Why are there five bishops in the first place, and where did they come from? And Sometimes I think it depends on the situation. I think that different communities have different stories. Um, Sometimes you will encounter groups 
where there are there have a n- number of splits. I mean, it's not unusual in Gnostic churches or, again, any other independent and sacramental church for them to be multiple, multiple splits. Gnosticism? Gnosticism, yes, yes absolutely. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've had a number of experiences myself with groups that just, you know, split one right after the other, and more and more bishops got made in some cases simply because uh, a church maybe wanted several bishops uh, on hand to make new bishops if the church expanded at some later date. So um, that happened, that's happened quite a bit. Um, You know, things like that happen. And I I don't think it's particularly positive, but you do end up then with an expectation. It seems to me you end up with an expectation that once you enter holy orders, that eventually you're just going to work your way up to the top. And if you don't, then you stomp your feet a lot and you go find another bishop who's willing to consecrate you. Do you think that we almost will put the expectation upon either new members um, and lay members of um, of wanting to pursue holy orders? I, again, from my own experience, and I can only speak from my own experience, when I first entered uh, the French Gnostic tradition in 1984, mm-hmm. um, it was expected that I was going to receive minor orders, and I received minor orders and first-degree Martinism. Here's the thing about that. Within a short period of time. I I don't know if it's expected or if it's a filling a vacuum because Mm -hmm. there's nothing else there. Um, I know I struggle with this in the Joanite Church, and and some one of my uh, denominational projects is you know working on uh, developing programs for the laity so that they don't see holy orders as the only option if they want to you know be more involved in, in church life and, and to learn more spiritual practices or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but as with a lot of small independent church movements and jurisdictions and whatnot, the the Holy Orders program is usually the only thing that is actually developed and worth yeah. doing. So I don't know if it's encouragement uh, towards the Holy Orders or just this is what we got, take it or leave it. Yeah. And I think, like in my own particular experience, I think that is probably um, probably the case. Is this is what we have? You want to learn these things? Well, you've got to go down this rabbit hole. You've got to do this, this, and this. And um, I think that um, you're 100 percent correct, Tony. I, I think you know, uh, um, as Gnostic clergy, one of the things that we should be uh, heavily working on, and maybe a future show topic, is uh, is you know development of programs for the ladies, so so they don't feel like they necessarily have to go down this particular rabbit hole if they aren't truly drawn into holy orders. You know that they can still pursue gnosis, and uh, there's still lots of active participation and things for them to do. That does not necessarily mean. Um, being called to becoming a priest. And and moreover, I would argue that just because a person does not take holy orders does not mean that they are not capable of spiritual attainment. Absolutely. And that it may be very possible for a person within a congregation uh, to have a much greater portion of gnosis than uh, certainly those who have holy orders within that organization. And perhaps also creating uh, ecclesiastical bodies that incorporate the voice and the, the power of lay people instead of, you know, keeping everything 
keeping all the power tightly contained with those, within those who are in the episcopacy or those who have holy orders. I can certainly speak for the the AJC, where the priests are you know vastly superior to the, the, the episcopate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know because uh, because we have more time for yeah. spiritual. It's certainly, you know, um, just this idea that uh, that the, the church is. Uh, to boil water, you put it in a pot. You cross the deep water, you get in a boat. That's what the church is. You know, it's this vessel, just a container um, for uh, for containing energy and for very practical purposes. And you know, some of those people are in the engine room, um, and some people are up on on the bridge over maps, um, and other people are actually uh, really having the experience of where we're going. So the laity often are unburdened, those who are not called to holy orders, um, they, have, they have more time. Than yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, that's extraordinarily valuable. And there are mechanisms for people who are not called to, uh, uh, to the traditional, to the major orders. Um, you know, certainly minor orders are uh, a lovely way to participate in church life and to live <laughs> Um, uh, if you say a calling, not a commitment. Um, mm-hmm. but also, have within the order of Saint Clement, we have um, the uh, through a monastic tradition for individual Gnostics who don't live near a congregation or don't work in a congregational model, but simply want a blessing for their own practice. They're going to keep orders. They're going to so they're going to keep hours. They're going to um, uh, maintain a liturgical calendar, whether it's just meditative. It's a uh, um, and so we have this blessing that is a multi-church initiative uh, that uh, uh, is there for individuals who seek it out um, to to be alone together. So mm-hmm. people who are engaged in solitary practice, in many cases, uh, hundreds of miles from a, a Gnostic congregation, uh, and yet they still want to have that sense of community and that sense that while it, on this particular day, on this particular feast day, they are lighting that candle, they are saying that prayer, and they are doing that in concert with other individuals around the globe. Um, and these kinds of things are, are artifacts of contemporary Gnostic culture. I love to see more of them. In a lot of cases, this particular work isn't necessarily being done within the churches or needs to be done in the churches because we are multifaceted individuals and these things are happening in martinist lodges or masonic lodges um or uh, other discussion groups and um and that's okay we've always coexisted with these uh with these other structures and institutions we've always shown that accommodation and elasticity um but i think that that harkens back to the whole issue of of elitism that uh this idea that that some uh, structures have, whereby you have to have this grade, you have to have gone through this initiation in order for your perspective to be valuable, or at least valuable in one specific context, um, then we have alternatives to that. We, we do have this uh, engaged, questioning, fascinating, uh, rich laity there. And so I, I don't... It, it hasn't been my experience to encounter 
elitism is a problem within our themselves. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on our time here. Uh, I wanted to thank you, Monsignor, for joining yes, thank us. thank you. And, um, thank you, Jordan. You, you've had a lot going on this past couple of weeks, haven't you? New website, a cover for your book. You've got, you know, stuff is happening, huh? Life's rich pageant. <laughs> That's good. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing the finished product on that book. And if you haven't uh, haven't yet, visit jo uh, Father Jordan's new website, uh, jordanstratford.com. And uh, and take a look. And uh, anything else you want to plug while uh, while you got the mic? Uh, as soon as um, uh, my bishop comes back from his holiday at honeymoon and pilgrimage, um, I'm going to be <laughs> about, um, uh, creating a, a blog on the Johannite site because I think it's just a WordPress install, and so it should be pretty easy for us to set up a, a little canonical domain and, and do some blogging there. Oh, that's cool. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, that's that. Thank you again to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Gnostic. Yes. Thank you. And uh, we will see you next week with, uh, with Bishop Will Bean. William Bean. <laughs> I don't think he likes Will. Uh, and, uh, and he's going to talk about uh, critical thinking on the video show, and then we'll have some additional guests joining us afterwards for the podcast as well. And, uh, That'll be great. So thanks very much. Fantastic. See you next Thanks, week. everyone. This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information on this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. Thank you.